Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. This song is going out to the mighty, mighty world of women. At that clinic, and you have to make a decision. Is it life? Is it death? I know you must decide. Either way, either choice, it is a long ride. Raise a child, sing a mom, and will the father be there? You had your fun that night, but I don't think he cares. Bring a life into this world is a big responsibility. Women, can you hear me? Each life is precious, so I ask that you think about it. There are people that can help you, so don't doubt it. It's demanding and you may not have much to give So hear me out when I say Just let them live I want you to know that they're precious human life Just let them live Taking away their chance I don't think that it's right Just let them live Taking away their opportunity to go Wong. I am on the air with my wonderful co-host. Hey, Thomas, how you doing? I am doing very well. You can call me the Visible Conservative, too. Oh, we're so. back with the titles. All right. Visible Conservative, Thomas Smith. Uh, it's an honor. And uh, today is June 6th. And I want to take a moment of silence to commemorate what... June 6th really means, if you don't remember or are too young to have heard. Today is right. the anniversary of the of D-Day. D-Day, which is, yes. That's right. Our, our troops in World War II stormed the beaches of Normandy on this day. Yep. And uh, we were going to take about 10 seconds. Thank you, everybody. Um, and we're gonna we're going to re- intro the rest of the show as we normally do, and then talk a little bit more about that. So, Thomas, please take it away. Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse nineteen says, "I record this day against you that I have set before you, 
life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed might live. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Father God, we are thankful on this day commemorating D-Day. We are thankful for all the sacrifices that our soldiers gave in the service of our country. Father, we are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we might be able to have a relationship with you. Father, we thank you for our show today, Lord God, dealing with a very explosive and a divisive issue, Lord God. And as we wind down this topic, Father, we pray that there is clarity that's brought to this subject matter so that people won't continue to be deceived by those with very evil agendas. Lord, we thank you for the voice that we, you've given us here on Pro-Life, True Life Fridays Radio. Thank you for our host, Letitia. Thank you for the wonderful guests that she successfully brings in. And I ask that you would bless their families, bless the information that they're going to present today. May it be effective and reaching those that need to be reached. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Thomas. Well, hey, can you summarize for us? Um, wait, let, before we do that, um, I want to continue in, in remembering that today is the day, and I'm so glad it falls on Friday this year so that we get to talk about it live on air is is the day I think was the last time that I can I can say that America as a country acted with the type of bravery I would like to see um and as far as our government is concerned right that that I would like to see more of and in fact I mean it's so sad that we have to look to 1945. Right. And uh, so so long ago, in order to find examples of self-sacrifice, of working toward a goal that is actually for the good of the entire world. Now, I understand this idea of when to go when a country should go to war and for what circumstances is very complex. So I don't right. want to make a, a complex issue. And I don't want to oversimplify it. But I want to say that um, the kind of resolve and the kind of motivation that Americans had going into World War II is not something I have seen much of in my lifetime. And I would, and I see it in individual men and women who serve our country in the military. 
I don't see it a lot coming from the government that they're working for, especially uh, in the last, oh, say, 10 to 12 years. I don't see a lot of that. And I wish to see more. Why is this a pro-life issue, Letitia? This is a pro-life issue because we are sacrificing and giving our blood and treasure, which doesn't seem to mean much to those uh, on the left when you happen to exist in the womb or when you happen to be incapacitated or when you happen to have no physical use that other other people have for you. Um, But they would agree still that our men and women in service are this country's blood and treasure and that we shouldn't give away their lives superfluously on causes that don't have enough good enough reason to give them. I would agree with that. They would agree with me. However, um, I'm being consistent here, and they are not. And that is why this is a pro-life issue, is that there are causes in this world, such as that of World War II, that merit this intervention, risking one's life and investing one's bodily, you know, risking bodily harm, life, limb, family, etc., in order to make sure that other people and ourselves can be free. That's a pro-life issue. Yep. And I hardly think that most, even the most anti-war uh, youth protesters this it, that we see today uh, would say that freeing countries from the grips of Nazi Germany was not a worthwhile cause. I don't. Right. I don't. I don't think I've heard many of them say so, and I think those that say so would prop would be very heartily disagreed with, even those on their other side, because everybody understands that without intervention, the continued extermination of Jews would be happening. The continued, And it wouldn't just stop there. It would go to Africans. It would go to blacks. It would go to Slavs. It would go to anybody that didn't fit the bill of the Third Reich as the most perfect people on earth. Or those that right. are life, life worth, lives worth living and the most useful and uh, worthy human beings on earth. So that is, um, that brings us, because everything is connected, that brings us to kind of our topic. And so far, we have been talking about this white privilege conference and the issues that have been touched off by the white privilege conference. And right. it's, it's all very connected. So Thomas, if you would give us a quick summary of the kind of things, the kind of conversations we've had this week, um, share for us all those, um, just, just what's been going on in our guests. Oh, wow. Yesterday we had Reverend C.L. Bryant. And he, he essentially, he broke it down in a way that 
you really can't you really can't add much to it. He even got he even got into the historical aspect using his own personal you know, his own personal family heritage. And essentially what Reverend C. L. Bryant said was that the notion of white privilege doesn't honor those black men and women who who died in slavery, mm-hmm. who had a dream for their families to someday be free. You know, he kind of talked about how the, um, you know, slave men, they were proud, even as they, as they were being beat. And, and you know this from, you know, from historical data. These men, they wouldn't cry as they were being whipped. They were strong and they were dignified. But, you know, so he was talking about that. He was talking about how the Christian church in, in seeking to adopt this, this whole notion of white privilege, the evangelical Christian church is walking down a, that's a slippery slope. Mm. And then you had Monday night, we had Jack Cashel and Babette Holder. You know, Jack Cashel, investigative reporter, white man who grew up as a minority in North New Jersey, where he, in his high school, he was one of only, I think he said, like two or three white people in his entire school. And he told a story one day of how he he went to play basketball, and just to humor himself, he decided to count how many black people was at the court in relations to white people. And it turned out it was 88 to 1, with him being a 1. <laughs> and so, so he, Jack has, has a perspective on the fact in the fact that he grew up in North Jersey. He he grew up in a family that raised the his, he was raised by his family that people are people. So, you know, don't get to tripping off a of race. And contrary to what the liberals try to say, some white people actually do raise their children to see people as people. Actually a lot more does as do black people, black conservatives specifically. But you know what? This this whole notion of white privilege, I I can't wrap my I can't wrap my um, mind around it because of the fact. How do you explain a George Washington Carver who had gotten well? He created ten thousand products from the peanut in the sweet potato. He right. didn't do that because of white privilege. How do you explain the guy from Chicago? I forgot the man's name. I could see his face. But he invented the stoplight. Black man. How do you explain the fact that, you know, because of the racist times, the man never got credit. Thomas Edison got credit for inventing the filament that's in the light bulb. But that's not true. The man that actually invented it was a black man. How do you explain that 
under the guise of white privilege because these men did those things in very, very racist times when it was legal to be racist. Right. So please explain to me, or could it be, or could it be those individuals who are actually benefiting from white privilege, are they themselves crying about white privilege? And I'm talking about black liberals. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about white liberals throughout the notion of white privilege when they themselves are the ones taking advantage of black people to get their agenda across in the black community. And that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Right, yeah, and we we capped off yesterday's most powerful program by seeing how that that this idea um, is infiltrating a lot of areas of American life. Of course it does. Of course, if it, it, of course it will. I mean, I'm just saying that anything that and the reason and I had a, I had this conversation with uh, Pastor Brian on the phone about why he I asked him why are pastors latching on to this. And not all. I'm not saying pastors in general. I'm saying that there's some some pastors that want to kind of be ahead of the curve, I guess, um, in in pastor land. You know, when there there's a competition, there's an unspoken competition. I mean, it's everywhere. Competition among pastors who could be uh, more cutting edge than the next guy, the next pastor. Right. And this is kind of the next cusp. Latching on to this idea of white privilege because it seems to be so academic to be uh, the, the, hot, the hot topic of the day. And um, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you my experience with this, and this is why I felt pretty strongly about wanting to put this on our True Radio Network. And I had always known that we've, I mean, Al Sharpton's been around for decades. Jesse Jackson has been around for decades, and he was known, Jesse Jackson was known for being an extortionist. He would go to, with, from his Rainbow Push Coalition, go to various big businesses and say, if you don't donate money to my Rainbow Push Coalition, I will accuse you and your company of being racist. And so uh, pay me money. And a lot of businesses did that. Because the last thing that anybody wants to be accused of, I guess, in this society is to be a racist. Uh, right. Uh, I mean, the next, the next wave is coming, is that you don't want to be accused of being a homophobe either. But right now, uh, this, is what, this is how people have made the, a name for themselves, like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. They have been race trading, like horse trading. They've been commoditizing the issue of race. They have been using race as a way to make a name for themselves and to make money for themselves. Racism, 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 racism. that's right, racism. (laughs) And and this is probably just the next iteration. This white privilege stuff has been around for a while. And, but the first time I think I got really alarmed is when I went to my daughter's public school. And it was the principal of the school 
Um, and he was sitting in from, uh, to make a very long story short, because it's, it's kind of rather involved, there was a presentation by some high school kids about how systems work. Now, we've all been primed up so that I don't have to explain what systems I'm talking about. The systems we were right. talking about yesterday, uh, the, the system of white racial privilege, the system of uh, uh, systematically giving minorities a disadvantage in, in school and in work and in, uh, you name it, society. And I looked at that, and this was my first exposure to, to this type of reasoning on paper in my face. <laughs> and I'm like, I absolutely do not understand what is going on with this presentation. And, well, the, the principal at the time said because the, the kids there uh, had gone on a break, he started to explain it to me. And he said, well, there are certain students that uh, are, have advantages over other students. Um, they have have material things that other students don't have, and this gives them a, an, a better identity, I suppose, a better personal view of themselves than those that do not. So those students that have fewer things, now these, this is my paraphrasing of his words, have fewer things than those who, students who have more things, suffer from some kind of identity problem that affects the way they view themselves and their performance at school. And I took a step back and I said, did I really hear what I just heard? That what you have in your hands and in your room and in your pockets and at your closets affects directly your self-image and how, if you, whether or not you can do your homework and turn it in on time. I was a little more than appalled, and it bothered me the rest of the evening. And I went to my black friend, who also had her daughter in school, and told her that what the principal had told me. And she took a step back, and she kind of said, I cannot believe people are talking about white privilege in this day and age. Because both of us had assumed, well, assumed wrongly, I guess, that in our society today we have progressed to the point where we see past people's skin color and assume what they do or do not have in their homes. And that makes a difference in their performance at school, on the job, etc. You see, her child is a gifted child. And my daughter's not too uh, not too shabby at school either. I'm a proud mom to say. Right. And we've not, and neither of us, being non-white people, have ever tried to handicap our children by saying that white people have more stuff than you. Therefore, you're not expected to do well in school because of that. What kind of message is that sending to our children when we tell them that their self-worth depends on what somebody else does or does not have and what you have or don't have? How materialistic and shallow is this? This in light of the fact that we have so many quote-unquote humanitarian groups 
liberal humanitarian groups, I should say, that always decry the fact that we have a system of of, uh, an economic system in this country that's based on capitalism. Money is evil. Money belongs to the state so that the state can redistribute it fairly, equally among all us little cogs in the wheel so that nobody has more or less uh, than they deserve. That's equality. That's fairness. Money concentrated in the power of not government is inherently unfair. Well, if that's the case, then we need to strip every iPod out of every teenager's hand that has one. Because it's unfair that somebody has one and nobody and someone else doesn't. Why isn't my child, because she doesn't own an iPod of her own, and everybody else does, seems like. That's what, at least that's what she says. <laughs> uh, why isn't she get, failing miserably at school because of that? Well, as a mom, I can tell you she's not failing miserably at school because life and her self-worth is not about what you own. And it's not about petty jealousy of the haves versus the haves have-nots. Right. And so this right. white privilege idea that came to me on, an, on a school night evening, um, I filed it away because I thought, well, geez, you know, this liberalism, yeah, it's creeping all over our public schools, but as long as uh, they're not trying to teach this to our children as a matter of, of societal perspective, then I guess I can live with the eventual slippery slope. You know, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a fact of life. People are going to be liberal. That's just, a, that's just life. Until uh, we, I learned about the White Privilege Conference. And I, thinking about it, I thought I, sh- I should have known about this a lot earlier. It doesn't surprise me now that it's happened for 15 years. What is surprising to me is that we haven't known about it for 15 years, until this year. Um, in in the mainstream media or some whistleblower hasn't come out and helped us like the good folks at Progressives Today kindly did for us so that we would know about it. And this is the clip that I'm going to play. Um, actually, I'm going to wait till our guest is on the line before I play this clip. Uh, and so I'm going to wrap, this, wrap up what I want to say about that is that I see this as a real dehumanization. As I a think so, too. Yes, it's a dehumanization. What it does, Thomas, it turns every person from a who into a what. Exactly. Exactly. And Lord knows, and let, and let me kind of add to that. I know you're ending this, but let me, let's end no, on this ahead. note. Go ahead. Because God knows, and you know my story and struggles that I went through, and, you know, even here recently, 
But at the end of the day, those struggles doesn't mean that I don't want to succeed. But don't tell me that I'm struggling because some white man did something to me or some white man is blocking my my um my way to advancement. The job that I have was given to me a, a opportunity to be very successful by a gentleman, a white man who is who is one of the co-founders of the original Tea Party. Very well-known individual. Not going to say his name. So don't tell me that, oh, he saw me and felt sorry for me. That had nothing to do with it, and it had everything to do with an opportunity to help someone. He saw a need. I have a business degree. So stop to all you white privileged individuals always talking that crap. Stop marginalizing me because I have an education like you do, and I didn't get it because some white man felt sorry for me. I got it because I struggled and I worked hard to get what I got. Take it away, Letitia. That's right. Well, I would agree. I would agree. But there is that, that aspect. <laughs> it's funny that you, said, you mentioned that this man is a, is a member of the Tea Party because you know the longer you're in the Tea Party, the more racist you get. <laughs> oh, of... yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm racist then. But my question would be, okay, who am I racist against? I'm black. Am I racist <laughs> against black people? Well, of course not. No, I'm racist. 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 Yeah, that and that's an interesting <laughs> thing. We can't be racist, but we sure have some of the most bigoted viewpoints around. But I digress. But at the end of the day, and as someone who really believes this, people are people. And until we start viewing people the way God views us and not right. the way man views us, we're going to have this garbage. That's right. We're going to have right. this garbage. So, hey. Right. I'm, I'm going to kind of um, add to that and say how the white privilege conference kind of figures into everything is that what is captured in the, in this conference is probably every contradictory liberal notion um, that has come to light since, since as far back as I can remember. Um, We have this idea that, that minorities can't have, can't be racist. First of all, more minorities can't be racist, even though, and only white people can be racist. And as, as we heard from some various clips, white people can be discriminated against, but they can't, ha- they can't be victims of racism. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Um, what happens when a person like me, who looks like me, an Asian person, um, is abused racially, by Hispanics and blacks or non-white people. Am I a victim of racism? Am I right. a victim? And the answer would be 
for them, I think, difficult to answer. But the obvious answer would be no, since black people and other non-white people can't be guilty of racism, I'm not a victim of racism, even though uh, the racial slurs and those things that I remember being said to me when I was younger all sound the same, no matter what color of the person who is saying it. Except that only if it came from a white person, then it's racist. But if it came from a black person, then it's not. I'm right. struggling to find out how that makes any sense. Because it looks the same, it sounds the same, and it hurts just the same. Exactly. Exactly. Yet, Go ahead. Uh, they, what they're going to say is, I'm not a victim of racism unless a white person has doled out the abuse. How ridiculous is that? <laughs> Ooh, that, How much that's, of How many people have they just let off the hook then for bad behavior? Themselves. Themselves. Oh, yeah? They let oh, themselves yeah. off the hook. That's what it boiled down to. They let themselves off the hook. And it kind it. Oh, my gosh. It kind of. Leticia, we could go on on this one forever because, I mean, I was. Here, here's a crazy story. And I don't know how this happened, but growing up, I grew up with a rough life. But when I grew grew up, I went through a period in life where I hated everybody equally. You were a human human being. I hated you just because I was one of the angry kids who was in false care of the system, all that stuff. But even in that hatred, I can honestly tell you, I was not taught racism. Mm-hmm. I was not taught that. Now, people in my family may have been racist, but they it was never mentioned to me. I can honestly say I did not start seeing racism until I was getting older. And to me, it was disgusting. I saw, uh, yeah, the white kids treated me bad. The black kids treated me bad. People treated me bad. But the thing of it is, was the racism, it disgusted me. And that's one of the reasons why I could not stand people. I hated people. Because my thing is this. You don't tell me I can't like somebody because of the color of my skin and their skin. So, therefore, I don't want to like you, period. Mm-hmm. And that that was the mentality I took because I could not understand it. Now, you know, I know I was responsible for holding on to the bitterness and the unforgiveness, not just towards white people, but towards my own community. And thank mm-hmm. God that we have a loving God who's no respecter of person. Think about that for a minute. What if God only respected the nation of Israel and said to hell with everybody else. How will we really feel? And that is what those Christian men who were talking about white privilege on, on the clip you played, um, Anthony Bradley and the other, the pastors. Oh, I forget them. Darn. Tim but Keller? That's, yeah, Tim Keller. And then there was one more. Um I forget who it was, but that's what they need to take into account and ask themselves, where would you, where would you be if God 
really only chose the nation of Israel, and there and there wasn't any redemption for anybody else. Because essentially, that is what they're saying when they say Western white Christ, uh, Christians need mm-hmm. to embrace the new evangelical <clears throat> evangelism, or however you say the word. Right. That's what it they're is, saying. It, it is a, it, I mean, it's a division that I don't think is justified. We're going to go take our break by by playing this clip from the White Privilege Conference, and we'll be right back on the other side with our guest, Walter Williams. Yes, I If you are this, to think about people who may not be so. It started with a P. Pretending. Pretending. Well, pretending was what we were doing. Sometimes you have a lot and you're not even aware of how much you have. And it's sometimes called privilege. Remember that word, privilege? If you have privileges, it's sometimes difficult to even think about people who might not have privileges. My privilege is when when people that are white get an advantage to people who are people of color. So if there was a job and a person of color was applying and a white person was applying, the owner was a white person, they might pick the white person just because they're the person's color, even if the black person was better. Um, white privilege is something that white people have, meaning they have an advantage in a lot of things, and they can get a job more easily. In addition to sponsoring teachers and professors, Each year, universities and high schools send hundreds of students to the White Privilege Conference. Some students even receive academic credit for their attendance. So when you talk about white privilege, you're talking about privileges that are entitled specifically to people of the skin color who are white. At the end of the conference, students were encouraged to take the stage and talk about what they had learned at the WPC. I'm really happy to be here. I feel like I've learned a lot. I feel like I've had this space where I can be weak and vulnerable and I don't have to lie about that. I can talk about how the racism inside me, I feel like when I go home and tell my parents that I'm a racist. And, and I, I'm not proud of that, but I am proud that I can say that. And so I guess thank you for making me happy. Wow. Um, I didn't set that up, but I should have set it up in that here is the, by saying here is the doctrine of white privilege in a nutshell as told by children and their child educators. And it's so nice that they parroted what they heard perfectly to the applause of adults when they admitted, yes, I am a racist and I didn't know it before. But here on the program with me today is Dr. Walter E. Williams from George Mason University, Professor of Economics. He's here to talk about what kind of benefits, monetary or otherwise, that this White Privilege Conference um, is, is having on certain people, and also how this is, because the title of this program is called The Racial Currency of White Privilege. Um, how 
this really devalues the human persons that are trying to, they're trying to help. So welcome to the program, Dr. Williams. It is an honor to have you here. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. So I want to start by asking you, um, what was, is your response to what you heard from the children admitting well, that they were racist? And I, I, I think that, uh, <laughs> that, that focusing uh, solely on the conference and some of the things that were said by uh, the conference, I think that the, the, the much greater danger is, is that, that these people at the conference, many of whom were teachers uh, in, our, in our K-12 schools, I mean, what they are doing to the youngsters in our society, because it's not just the 2,400 uh, uh, people that were there. Uh, this is something that is fairly widespread across mm-hmm. our society in our public schools. And the tragedy of it is that parents have absolutely no idea of the kind of indoctrination that their kids are getting, not only in matters of race, but global warming, uh, the uh, the... Um, the, the propaganda in the about the political arena and matter of fact one of the one of the teachers there said that 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 the teacher's job is political and if a teacher cannot accept that they ought to get the so and so out of teaching mm. and so and and so you you and and, and this is particularly uh tragic uh for for black kids because uh, the 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 kind of education that that white kids get in our country is nothing to write home about. I mean, it's, it's disastrous when you consider the idea that 50% of all incoming freshmen in college need some kind of remedial education. Right. But the kind of, but the kind of fraudulent education that black kids are getting is, is nothing less than a crime. I mean, the, the average American, including the average black American, uh, does not know that a black student with a high school diploma in his hand he cannot read, write, and do arithmetic and science as well as a white seventh or eighth grader. And I mean, that is just grossly fraudulent education. And a lot of it has to do with what teachers are teaching our kids, spending their time on politics, spending their time on this, and spending their time on white privilege and all this kind of stuff, instead of teaching our youngsters reading, writing, and arithmetic. And that's right. going on many schools and and i think uh, the people in this in the state of wisconsin i mean the the i think the university of wisconsin is sponsoring some of this, some of this stuff and i think also uh the university of colorado was involved in in sponsoring some of this stuff and this is, right. these are taxpayer subsidized institutions that's right that's right um what does this do i mean i, I particularly picked out a clip with all of those that are you know, under 18 <laughs> talking about what they were learning and what they've been indoctrinated to say, and how yeah. is this really helpful to them? It's, um, it's, not, help, it it's not helpful at all. It's, it's just propaganda. I mean, for example, this uh, uh, professor of law at Berkeley, uh, he told the audience that the reason why the, the New Orleans levees were not kept up and the and there's this huge flood during uh, uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina, is because yep. uh, they they were not maintained because they 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 were protecting black people. That is the right. the, the 
the levees, I mean, the and the flooding and all the killing was in, in the, or the uh, deaths in, uh, as a result of Hurricane Katrina was a result of racism in this guy's eyes. Right. And right. So I remember these that. These are the kind of that. things that our youngsters are learning in school. Right. I mean. I mean, it goes beyond the kind of things that, that, that you're talking about with white privilege uh, things. That is, teachers are asking kids questions like, do your parents smoke in the house? And if they smoke in the house, would you ask them to go outside? Or have you ever, have you ever seen your father hit your mother? Or have you, or, 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 or have, have you caught your parents having sex? I mean, these kind of questions that <laughs> teachers are asking kids. Matter of fact, right. my colleague Tom Soule, some time, some years ago, he documented it in a book uh, called Inside Education, Inside of American Education. And if anything, it's much worse now than when he was writing about it. I think in the uh, in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And so wow. I think the, the message, the message that 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 you need to get out and all of us need to get out is 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 not necessarily the the particulars of the white privilege con- uh, conference uh, uh but just what they are doing and destructive influence of this kind of behavior on our young people in our country right. well, so, I mean, it's, it's I... part of the indoctrination of the mm-hmm. left and and you were like like one lady was saying well look capitalism is is the same as racism and that's yeah. exactly the opposite. That is, in order to to have racial discrimination, you need a massive government control. In, the, in other words, you need socialism. Right. That and that was expressed. And that yeah, I think you honed in on something that I really want to focus on is what kind of mentality and self-image and and destruct you said you mentioned this is absolutely destructive to the person what kind of destruction does it have on the individual say a, a young minority child you know in living in the urban areas what does that kind of what does that do to a person well it it, it teaches them it teaches them that somebody owes him a favor that it teaches him that the problems that he faces are a result of racism and discrimination and now nobody's going to deny that there's not there's not uh, some remnants of racial discrimination in our country, but mm-hmm. the major problems that Black Americans face have zero to do with discrimination. Uh, for example, seventy uh, some uh, percent of Black kids are born uh, out of wedlock. That's a right. devastating problem, but it has, doesn't have anything to do with racism. Uh, uh, over fifty percent of homicides in our in our country. Blacks are the victims, and 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 most of the time, almost 100 percent of the time, they're killed by other blacks. That's a devastating mm-hmm. problem, but it's not it's not a result of racism. It's not the it's not the Ku Klux Klan riding through the neighborhoods doing that. Right. The, the the fraudulent education that blacks are getting, it's happening in the very cities such as Detroit, Philadelphia, Washington D.C., where the mayor is black, the chief of police is black, the superintendent of schools are black. But yet they, they, they're getting rotten education, and it's uh, uh, and and the living conditions are horrible for many blacks. So, so the point is I'm making is that that these young people are being taught that 
racial discrimination is their problem. Somebody owes them something that they ought to have affirmative action. They, they, you know, they, they, they need a, they need a favor. That's what, that's what being mm-hmm. taught instead of independence. No, matter of fact, I'm 78 years old, and 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 there was there was discrimination when I was growing up. The response of my mother to me said, "Look, Walter, if there's discrimination, and all that, and what that means is that you have to be better." That is, when you're number two, you have to be better. Mm-hmm. That was the lesson that we got. That's not the lesson that these kids are getting from these teachers. They're right. saying somebody owes you something. Mm-hmm. It's not your fault. So where is the motivation that, I mean, your mother gave you a motivation to be better. What happens to the motivation to be better under these circumstances? Well, you, you don't have any motivation. The, well, or, or the motivation is cons- considerably uh, reduced. That is, mm-hmm. as soon as you can blame your problems on somebody else, and that's a temptation with all of us. We, we, right. we never want to say, if, if something happens to us, we never want to own up to the fact, well, gee, I'm stupid, I made a stupid mistake. I mean, that, that takes some courage to be introspective and blame yourself. It's far easier to blame it on somebody else. I mean, you, 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 you can't get a job. Well, that's because of racial discrimination. Uh, mm. you're doing, this happens to you. Oh, that's the result. It's not your fault. It's not anything that you didn't do, that, that you did. It's somebody else's fault, and that's the lesson being taught. And that's right. a devastating it, lesson. Does this affect how how people view themselves, how young people view themselves. They're they're just victims rather than people who need to act on their own behalf. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah it teaches them that they're victims. And then I think that there are a lot of these people, particularly the grown-ups here, they, 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 they matter of fact, on my website, it's WalterEWilliams.com, I have a certificate of amnesty and pardon. And, and it, it's a certificate. It's, it's, I've granted pardon, amnesty and pardon to all Americans of European ancestry, both for their own grievances and those of their forebears. And the reason why I do that is that I, I would like for white people to stop, stop feeling guilty, guilty and stop acting like damn fools with, in their relationship with black people. I love it. Oh, yeah, check, yes. check it out, uh, and you can print it out. It's on my website, WalterEWilliams.com, and it's in the upper, uh, upper right-hand corner under gift. <laughs> I mean, that's, wow. that's absolutely wonderful. Um, you had written a, a, an article recently in TownHawk.com about white privilege, and you say in it um, that the propaganda and lunacy go even deeper than that. And you quote the woman Jacqueline Badalora, who said, yep. white people did not exist before 1681. Again, white people did not exist on planet Earth until 1681. And I give the website reference for people to read, to, to go to it and find her statement. And I, and I point out in the column, well, gee, if, if, if uh, Professor uh, Badalora is correct, well, then... <laughs> How do we identify William Shakespeare or Sir Isaac Newton or John Locke or and, and especially uh, Plato because uh, right. he's born he's, he was uh, around in in 428 BC. So, but but again, I, it's 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 something that I just plain don't understand. But it's something that sells with the crowd because the people were applauding when she was saying this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I. So, 
Okay. So what Go I'm ahead. saying is that is that this kind of these kind of things reduces people's ability to think. And so they have they have no thought capacity. Otherwise, if if somebody who could think and could uh, think on their feet, they would have a challenge there about that statement, or they would challenge right. the they would challenge challenge other people, other statements. I mean, but but they don't challenge them because they they don't have a, a thinking ability. Does this lower, in their own eyes, does this lower? the view of the human person at all and their potential that you are what I had said before we brought you on is that white privilege and white this ideology reduces people to instead of being whose we are what we become you, 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 I think ob- you're right I'm sorry to cut across you. But oh, go ahead. I think that I think that you're. I think you're right. And and then this notion of white privilege doesn't make it. Look, uh, I was I was I'm 78 years old. I grew up poor in the slums of North Philadelphia, and probably our our level of income was in the lower five or ten percent of the of all Americans. Now today, my income is in the top 5% of Americans. Now, uh, can someone come up to me and say that I have white privilege? Or or my daughter, who who, uh, who, uh, who goes to a very nice, who went to nice schools and got a college education, et cetera, et cetera, is, I mean, she, she, is, she is much better off than many whites are. So can you charge her with having white privilege, or would we want to call it black privilege? Right. Um, I, you know, do people deny well, <laughs> deny the, fe- the existence of what, black privilege or or any other race? Do we do we call r- privilege a racial thing at all, or should we? Yeah, well, that's that's what they have it. You know, like uh, yeah. it, if you if you look at the if you look at national income statistics, it turns out that. Uh, Asian Americans, both Chinese and Japanese, they they are almost at the top in socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomically, and so in terms of level of education, family stability, income, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, what would you say? What would you say about whites and Asians in our country? Mm-hmm. That is, do mm-hmm. they have some kind of privilege? And 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 beyond the fact that. That uh, you know they 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 face gross discrimination uh, in in our country and and for Japanese Americans, I mean the you know the during World War II they had a property virtually uh, totally confiscated and and right. internment and so right. so well and, well they're up near, they're up near the top in terms of economic uh, uh, economic uh, uh, well being and so it, it, are they getting some kind of privilege. Um, I, I would ap- assume that the answer from that side of the aisle would be yes, but I would think that would be hard for them to explain. Um, it seems like we have exceptions all over the place, but the doctrine still is true. Doesn't it seem like that that their narrative is a part of the part of the narrative that was said at the white privilege conference is that you can't deny that this is happening. This is so indisputable. Uh, yet we have all these examples of people who have overcome this narrative. How many do oh, we yeah, need? Oh, yeah, right. 
And, right. And, 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 and in terms of black Americans, something that's not said too much and, and is not acknowledged, and I find as a black person, I find it somewhat insulting, it turns out that I think that we can safely say that black Americans have made the greatest gains over some of the highest hurdles in the shortest period of time than any other racial group in the history of mankind. Now, why do I say that? Well, it turns out, and, and, and a lot of these statistics are in my uh, book, uh, Race and Economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, it turns out that if you add up the income that black Americans earn and thought of us as a nation, we would be the 16th or 17th richest nation on the face of Earth. There are a few black Americans who are among the world's richest people. Mm-hmm. There are many black Americans who are some of the world's famous people. It was a black American in the form of Colin Powell, in the name of the person of Colin Powell, who headed the world's mightiest military. Now, the significance of this, in 1865, neither a slave nor a slave owner would have believed that these kind of gains would have been possible in just a little bit over a century. And as such... It speaks well to the intestinal fortitude of a people, but just as importantly, and perhaps more importantly, it speaks well of a nation in which these kind of gains would be possible. That is, these kind of gains that black Americans have made in our country would have been impossible anywhere on the surface of this earth except the United States. And And so I think that... The, the, but the big problem for black people is how can we extend these tremendous gains that black Americans have made to a large percentage of the black population, 30%, percent right. for whom right. these gains appear to be uh, uh, elusive. Elusive, rather. Yes, yes. That's, that's the million-dollar question, or more. <laughs> and and, and so, so, so the question is, is that the, the kind of things that are being spoken – in the white privilege conference and the kind of things that are being taught to our young people are not very conducive in terms of helping people get on their feet and have a sense of independence and can-do attitude. I mean, the, the kind of things that I was taught by my parents when I was young, things like, well, look, if you want to get ahead in this world, you've got to come early and stay late. Mm-hmm. Or my stepfather would tell me, look, Walter, any kind of job is better than begging or stealing. And, but this is not the message going to young, young black people today. I mean, they're saying, well, oh, you don't have to take some minimum wage. You don't have to flip hamburgers. I mean, uh, it's racism why you can't get a job. Oh, so there's a sense where it's not so much opportunities. They're looking for certain types of opportunities You're that right. fit yeah. up an image. And, and you have to and you have to ask the question uh, with uh, you know people come to this country uh, uh, r- relatively recent immigrants come to this country they don't have anything uh, and they, they hardly speak the language and in a couple of generations they're in the middle class American society I'm talking about people from the uh, the Caribbean uh, the West West Indians who come to this country or or boat people from Vietnam. Uh, come to this country, and and they're poor for uh, maybe a, maybe a generation, and then you see uh, they're, they're moving up the economic ladder. Well, see, they have not bought the kind of victimhood status. Uh, they haven't bought into the victim uh, mentality that that's being taught by these teachers uh, to our children. Mm-hmm. 
Right. I, I, I see that. I see the big disparity. I think there's been a study done uh, comparing Africans who have immigrated, you know, Africans who have come to this country yeah. um, and their academic performance and their, their, I guess, material successes versus, you know, little children who are, are black that are born yeah, here. Yeah, who are black. And yeah, have, right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And, right. and you, you, find, you find Nigerians, for example, uh, you know, most Nigerians are in, that are in this country are, are middle and upper income people. And so, so, so it, it, now, if you could think, if these people could think, they say, oh, well, gee, the black problems are caused by racism. Well, you, I would ask the person, well, look, you have uh, um, uh, people who are from uh, Carib- the, Caribbean, the, uh, the, the Caribbean who, who earn uh, slightly higher than the average white person. You have these Nigerians who are, have a lot of professional status and they're earning uh, good money. Now, mm-hmm. I, I would ask the person, well, does a white racist take time to find out whether you are an American black <laughs> or whether you are from the Caribbean? And if you're from the Caribbean, he won't discriminate against you. <laughs> I think that's an excellent question. Uh, well, I do, want, I do not want to uh, overextend your time. I'm very thankful that you came on the air with okay. us today, and we're really honored to have you, Dr. Williams. Well, thank, um, thank you for inviting me, and, and keep up the struggle. Thank you so much for your thoughts, and uh, I would love to have you back on another day. Okay, let's try. Okay, excellent. Okay, Thank bye. you very much. Good night, sir. And I want to continue on this in this line of thinking and talking about how to see the disparities that are created by white, the, I should say this, white privilege conference over white privilege. I think in our, our show description, we had talked about that being uh, a – I had mentioned that there is a difference. Has, has white privilege been more negative toward the minorities, blacks, over the white privilege conference, the white privilege theory? I'm pretty sure from seeing – and listening to minorities, black people of all, all walks of life. Dr. Williams, you know, who is a professor at a university, all the way down to little old me, all walks of life, saying that the idea that we live under white privilege and it's holding people back is more dangerous by itself to holding people back than if it were real. The white privilege theory is more detrimental to people than white privilege, if it even exists. So I want to take a break right now and uh, come back on the other side of the break with another guest you're going to want to listen to, Kevin Jackson from BlackSphere.net. Hang in there. Come back. Uh, if you have questions, the number to call in is 760-542-3907. We'd love to hear from you. And stay right there.
Hi, everybody. You're tuned to True Life Fridays with Letitia Wong and friends. Don't miss out. Today's great episode is brought to you in part by Lifeboat Coffee. 10% of your purchase at LifeboatCoffee.com will go directly to support True Life Fridays. Just remember to name True Life Fridays when you check out on the web. Hi, everybody. I'm John Lillis, founder and president of Lifeboat Coffee, America's pro-life coffee company. We support True Life Fridays, and we hope you will, too. True Life Fridays will be right back. Don't go away. And if you buy your coffee from anywhere else, you are not supporting the cause. Just saying. If you want truly, truly free coffee, please order your coffee through lifeboatcoffee.com. Uh, they are friends of True Life Fridays, friends of mine, and super, super duper people. So uh, just give them a shout out and uh, support a truly, cruelty free coffee. On with me now um, is somebody I've been admiring from a distance for a while, even though he lives in St. Louis, but not for forever because he's moving. And he has had a great network being built up. He's a strong conservative. He is on the Jamie Allman Show here in the St. Louis area on, in the mornings. It's Kevin Jackson from the net. Welcome to the program. Hey, glad to be with you. I'm so glad that you're here and so glad that you're here to share, this, uh, share your thoughts with us. Um, if you were listening earlier, we had a couple of clips that we played from the White Privilege Conference, okay. particularly, particularly the ones with the children. And I picked those out because this wasn't just a conference of, of academic elites powwowing with each other about white privilege. They were actively teaching children, school children, eight years old, nine years old, teenagers, People, high school students, college students, all came to to this conference to learn about how racist they were. Oh sure, and yeah. Do about it. I mean, Jim Jim Jones was able to get followers too, wasn't he? That's true. That's true. And I mean, that's uh, what I equated to. It's a cult. It's a cult-like idea that you know black people are. If you if you're white then you're born into some sort of privilege. Well, I, I will tell you, the overwhelming number of white people, or no overwhelming people, white people that I know, were not in, born into any privilege. You typically mm-hmm. hang out with people in the same class as you. And we were poor. My family, we were poor. I, I jokingly say that the electric company came out once and blew out the, the candles. But, <laughs> you know, so, so the idea here is that, you know, that, that I mean, I'm sure you know there are many of your friends. They don't have fathers who are can get them into Exeter or Harvard or who could you know do the things that are so-called white privilege. And if they wanted to invoke white privilege, I tell you the first place I would start looking is the half white side of Barack Obama, who has really lived a life of privilege. You're talking about a dope smoking piker who, mm-hmm. because of privilege, was ushered through the system. And because he, quote, wasn't one of these, um, you know, blacks that was more menacing looking, in other words, fully black, uh, he people treated him. What's that? You mean, as Harry Reid called him, he was clean? Yeah, the light-skinned Negro with no Negro dialect. And, of course, Biden called him uh, articulate and clean. So oh, he, yeah. represented, he represented the so-called black who, in, in the black 
vernacular, behaved white, and he was he's a perfect example of white privilege if there if it exists but see that's the problem it isn't white privilege it's privilege and and it's based on how you carry yourself and and barack obama being the fraud that he is he comported himself as if he were a stand-up guy he talks intellectually he does he he behaves uh, you know like a baboon I, I i tell people all the time instead of what would jesus do when i think about obama i ask what would what would what would a uh, scooby do so, you know, he's, he, he acts as if he's an intellectual, but he's really not. And so he's from privilege. Michelle Obama, what, how did she get her $350,000 job at that hospital where they were rejecting uh, poor patients was through right. privilege, you know, and on and on. So let me tell you, privilege has nothing to do with color. It has to do with the people who are in power. And the idea behind the so-called white privilege movement is white people are the ones in power. Well, let me tell you, I think it's like uh, the year 2052 or somewhere along in there, white people will no longer be the people in power. You're going to be the minority. And I'm right. wondering what's going to be, what are they going to be talking about then is privilege. Oh, it's blonde hair privilege. It's blue eye privilege. It's, you know, you've got a, a, a runway model body privilege or whatever. Privilege is, is so ridiculous when you think about it. The average, the, I mean, this is a, a, a ironic way to put it, but the average person in America is very average. Their average intelligence, their average looks, their average height, their average, you know, whatever. They, but what they do and, and the people who succeed have one quality that they do, that they have, and that is they, they know who they are. They know what they're good at, and they focus at it. And that's mm -hmm. what America was built on. It was built on people who were willing to, to you know, to take what they knew as, a, as, a, as their skill set and do that. I, I tell my friends all the time, I'm never going to be the best programmer in the world. I mean, I'll use your software, but I'm never going to be the best programmer. But try to out-concept me, try to out-market me, and that's why you're going to find out I'm pretty good at it. Right. But here, here's let me, let me kind of tease this out and, and get into the nitty-gritty just for a moment. Um, sure. The idea of white privilege is not that, you know, all the white people in the, in the country uh, have stuff that black people don't have. It's not just that even the poor ones, they're saying that even the, the most disadvantaged of the whites uh, can walk around and not be uh, accused of being a thug, or people aren't afraid of white people walking up to them on the street at night, but you are if there's a bunch of black people around. Um, that's called white privilege. Uh, well, it's nonsense. It's yeah, nonsense because, because, you know, if you, it, it's kind of like what Mark Cuban said. If he sees a well-tattooed, muscular white dude with a bald head and earring and, you know, and, and he's on one side of the street and it's at night, he's liable to cross the street. And the same way if he sees black kids wearing the uniform of the ghetto, which is a white beater and their pants below their waist, and dreadlocks, he's liable to cross back over one way or the other. But here's what I'll tell you. The, the, if you see a well-dressed black man, he's in a suit and tie, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and you're walking down the street, you probably won't cross. You'll probably look at him and say, wow, I wonder what he's doing out this late as well. You know, I wonder if he's as fearful as I am. And the answer may be, yeah, he very well may be. So it isn't that it's, you know, you, you can, people get sized up by what they wear and their behavior. There are behaviors that people have that trigger your fight-or-flight mechanism or put you on guard. And, look, this is just a, a, a very lame attempt to make people believe that in a country – 
where we are made up of the mosaic of every nationality. There's not a nationality in the world that's not represented in the United States. That can't be said of I don't believe any other country. We are represented. We represent every single culture. And not only that, not anecdotally, not one or two, there are little Italys and little Ukraines and little Romanias and all this all across the country. And people of all nationalities, all races, all creeds, etc., have succeeded. Yet we're having an insane discussion that somebody has it over another. And, and I find that ridiculous. You, you took this a step further because you had written about, uh, on your blog, it's called White Privilege Explained, that you had an experience with a friend of yours about music and how white privilege kind of factored into that conversation. Tell us a little bit about that. Remind me what I was talking about there because oh, I, sure. I, I honestly... Um, it was about music and how your apparently uh, white female friend could listen to music a little differently than you could just because you were a different... Oh, I, jo- I jokingly, yeah, I jokingly <laughs> said the orange juice for her <laughs> tasted so much better than mine in the morning. I mean, we were sitting having <laughs> breakfast and it was like, how's your orange juice taste? She's, she's like, so much better than yours because I've got white privilege. The music <laughs> she hears is just so that much more refreshing. I'm, I'm only predicting here that she can hear decibels that I cannot hear as a black person. And, and what was funny about it, her name is Laura. She's married to a Frenchman. And, and uh, we jokingly were talking about white privilege because Laura is a, a Texas cowgirl who grew up, you know, working on a ranch, working on a farm. And, she, and her joke was, I don't have any white privilege. I would certainly like to know what it is. And so she called me up one day and said, hey, Kevin, how's your orange juice? And I said, obviously not as good. We, we knew what was going on. So I was like, obviously not as good as yours. So and that, of course, spurred me to write about it. Because it is this idea that we are – let me tell you kind of my, my take on this from the standpoint of a young black kid growing up. I remember, I remember saying to myself, golf is a white game. Skiing is a white person's sport. Uh, deep sea fishing – I fished, but I didn't deep sea fish because that was for the white man. You know, mm. white men had yachts, you know. White men – so there was this sort of this idea of what is the white world and what is the black world. Now, I grew up on a very wealthy white uh, family's farm, ranch. It was 25,000 acres, and my grandparents worked for them. And what I learned from them is that, number one, they were very nice. They, they let me do everything. I went on safari in Africa with them and a bunch of other stuff. And I learned that it isn't, the world isn't a white world and a black world. The world is what you make it, and if you're wealthy enough, you get to experience a lot more of the world than the other person. So I made mm. the, the conscious effort at a young age that I want to see the world through a rich man's eyes, not through a poor man's ah. eyes. And, and, and so what I did is I remember the first time I played golf, because, again, when, keep in mind, I still thought it was a white man's sport. So I played it. And I remember the first time I made contact with that little white ball, and I was hooked because the idea of taking a stick and putting it above your head and then swinging it down and hitting this little bitty ball made baseball look like it was for, you know, for, for kids. And I just loved the, the sound of it when it went to where I wanted it to go and, and all the things that go in that sport, and I get it. Now, let, let me just use golf as an example. Ask any athlete, ask Charles Barkley, ask Michael Jordan, as uh, Mike Madano uh, of the formerly of the of the the sport the uh, Dallas Stars hockey team, ask any of these guys what is a sport 
that you really feel like takes a lot of takes the most skill to learn and and who do you admire the most and i will tell you eight out of ten of the athletes will tell you golf and they admire tiger woods and his ability Mm -hmm. to strike the ball with that level of accuracy and so on and so forth because they know the skill that goes in the sport so the point i'm making is all of us barkley michael jordan and many other blacks who now love the sport of golf all we had to do was play it but until we did it was a white man's sport and we were told it was a white man's sport tennis was a white man's sport that's why arthur ashe was so uh you know so much of a of a superstar in the black community by the way he was a stand-up guy as well so mm-hmm. once you finally figure out it, tennis is a sport if more white people play it that doesn't make it white you know that just makes it a sport that black people should probably try and see if they like it and maybe they will excel like the williams sisters have right right Good, very good point. Um, but here's here's the thing that you raised something that I thought would be uh, interesting. There, there's the idea that there is this we don't want to be like white people because white people represent something to us of a lifestyle or a view of the world, and we'll do anything to be different from that, even if it means we're not going to succeed financially like white people because only white people can be rich right well okay well so so you say but uh, hold on one second i can't open that you got to get mom to so here's here's the thing about that it's an ignorant thing to say i don't want to do something because white people do it in fact I, i tell ignorant black people good don't do it because that just means there's more room for me to do it. <laughs> you know, I, it's truly the way I feel. When, when I was told as a kid mm-hmm. that white people were evil, and the Mormons, the family who we worked for, my grandparents worked for, who were the most giving, amazing, loving family, treated us like family, said to me, Kevin, where do you want to go to college? you want to go to school at Oxford? Or do you want to go to Oxford, England, to go to a private school where, where the royals go? They were going to send me and my brother there. They ended up sending me to private military school. And I got, my brother and I got scholarships to, to college. Then when they said to me, hey, Kevin, do you want to uh, uh, go to Africa with, with – do you want to go to Kenya with Lou or do you want to go to Tanzania with Lou, the, the, the patriarch of their family, to go to the National Wildlife Parks and go hunting and, and seeing Africa? Absolutely. You know, so here's everybody telling me, a child of the 60s, that these people are evil and mean, and I'm going I'm – I'm laughing. I'm literally six, seven years old just going, y'all are crazy. These people are amazing. <laughs> you know, and, and you know what? If you want to believe that about them, no problem. That just leaves a lot more white people out there for me because you know what they care about? They, you know what made them ga- uh, gravitate to me and my brother? It was our character. We were yes, right. sir, yes, ma'am, boys, you, no, sir, no, ma'am. We were helpful. We did things. We, we didn't have a chip on our shoulder about race. And they were always helpful, always helpful, always willing to do, always willing to give. So if black people say they don't want to do it, first of all, I'll tell you this, they're lying. Because if you say you don't want to live the, quote, white man's life, then what you're saying is you don't want good credit and have to have your, your, kid, your phone in your kid's name. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Right. Because the fact of the matter is white people live great lives. They do things that we haven't done, and the only reason why we haven't done them is because typically we don't have the finances to do them. Well, if that's living the white life to go, you know, uh, 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 yachting in Nice or go hanging out with somebody at Cannes or going to Europe and, and, and doing something, you know, pretty interesting that, you know, maybe you go to, go to London and hang out or whatever, then give me the white life. 
I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say it. Yeah, and I, I, I'll ask you the same question I asked uh, Walter Williams, uh, who was on a little bit earlier. Has this, this idea of white privilege done something negative to the mind, I think, uh, in terms of not just motivation for minorities to excel, but does it devalue the human person that is yeah, being directed? Yeah, the short answer at? is... Yeah, it's a great question, and, and the short answer is absolutely it does. I mean, the one, the one thing that liberalism, which has created this, this, you know, this crazy idea of white privilege, has done is it's stolen the initiative and the creativity from black kids and black people. And that's the thing that bugs me the most is there's something to be said when you're told you can't do something. Uh, you know, now, I, I'm, and, I'm, and but for the record, I'm not telling you that people should be told that, I, but, you know, it, it, as a rule, but I remember uh, teachers saying things like, well, you know, and I, this happened certainly much more, much, you know, early in the 50s and things like that, like they'd say to a black kid, well, you can't be a doctor, you know, and, and every time they would say something like that, if you talk to the person who had resolve, they did exactly opposite of what the person said if they said you can't be a doctor i give you dr ben carson you know mm. if they say you couldn't be an astronaut you know i give you the black astronaut because that was the thing that challenged you to say screw you you know you're not going to tell me what i can be and and so what's happened is when we, we number one we don't even know how to dream outside of wanting to be beyonce or wanting to be lebron james which are very unlikely you know, if you say to a black kid, do you want to be a doctor, a nurse, an engineer, or whatever, they, they, they don't have enough creativity, and they don't have the people backing them up to say it, and there's nobody telling them that they can't do it anymore. You know, it's it just the system has been set up to, to say, you're not going to, but I no longer have to tell you. I'm going to give you a substandard education. I'm not going to challenge you. I'm going to cheat on your grades. If, if the school doesn't live up to its expectation, you know what I'll do? I'll have, the te- I'll have the teachers change your grade. So we have more kids graduating with no – can't read. And, and I could tell you horror stories of kids that are in the 11th grade right now, black teenage boys and girls who can't read. They can't read at a fifth grade level. And so – I don't even have to keep you down any longer. And because of that, you, you don't have the ability to dream. Nobody's challenging mm. black kids to dream. So what's the, what's the solution? What's the way out? How do we deal with this white privilege mentality that seems to be invading our lives? Well, I, I think it's up to white folks. Uh, you know, when somebody says you've got white privilege and you say, well, explain it to me. And they go, well, you get, I mean, people don't look at you and you go, well, yeah, okay, so what you're telling me is I've squandered my life because I should be living in Bill Gates' house? How, explain to me how that was going to happen. I had a single mom. You know, my dad is in prison or my dad works as a janitor. Ex- explain to me how I was going to get into Harvard through my dad. You know, how's, how's my mom going to help me? She's a hairdresser. You know, now I would like you to juxtapose that conversation with Malia and Sasha. Or right. Oprah Winfrey's nieces and nephews, or Stedman's, or LeBron James, or the, the dozens, if not hundreds, of multimillionaire young black men, and, and all the, the, the uh, singers, the Rihannas of the world, and the, the Beyonce's. I'd like you to tell me how, the, how they've suffered at the hands of white privilege. Because you know what? If we do have white privilege, we're really doing a pretty bad job, because too many black people are slipping through the net. Right. I think, I think that's that makes the way a I would explain it. And I think that 
that people do have to come together. I mean, this is, it seems like they're trying to tell, this is the narrative. White privilege theory is the narrative and white people don't have anything to say. In fact, they were kicked out of a, thing, a room they couldn't participate in because they were white. Well, look, it's you, you guys, no offense to white, white folks, y'all, y'all are the ones that do the strangest things, being, being honest with you. I mean, you'll attend a white privilege you know, const, uh, event so that people can tell you how bad you are. I, it, it, I, would, I dare you. I, I dare you to tell black people, hey, we're going to have an event where we're going to talk about how bad black people are. And then black people go, oh, shoot, I'm going to go see that. Girl, you you going to the event where they gonna tell us how bad we are? Oh, girl, I got my ticket. I got tickets for my whole family. It's <laughs> just crazy. But you guys, uh, man, they'll sign up. Right. You got you got academics, academics that they'll go. There will be a white privilege, con- you know, event happening in. It could be anywhere. It could be in the bowels of Cleveland or something. Oh, and I'm telling you, they will pack the house with with a bunch of ex, you know, former hippies or somebody that will come there and go. I knew it. I knew I was privileged, and I'm, you know, whatever. They, they will sing the, sing the praises or whatever because you know why? They see it as a social experiment. They see black people as a social experiment. We're like lab rats. I call it, we're lab monkeys for the left because they want us to feel as if something's being done. You know, uh, like the, we're going to, like, like they're, they're zookeepers or something or they're PETA and they, they're looking at the zoo going, you need to free all those black people. Don't, don't try, the, the animals are just a metaphor for black people. Free willy. That's what they look at it as. And, and you guys will line up to do this nonsense. And it makes me wonder at times, you know, where, where do those people come from? What genetic pool is, comes, from, <laughs> comes from the idea that says, I'm going to go denigrate myself in order to make another group feel good? If you want to say to me, Kevin, look, I've noticed, I noticed in the 60s that you guys got treated that way, and we want to discuss the 60s and see if there's any impact today, and, and let's discuss it and see if there is, and if there isn't, then we let it go. But no, they, they forget that. And, and give, given five million examples of, of black people that are making it in all levels of life in society, and to have a white privilege conference is, is absolutely ludicrous. Right. I, I would I totally agree with your assessment. Uh, but say, hey, our time is up. Give us uh, where people can find you and read your, your writing and listen to you on the air before we go. So well, theblacksphere.net. Yeah, theblacksphere.net is where you can find me, and uh, my radio show is on from 9 to midnight, WGUL 860. But, again, go to the website. You can find out where we brought, when we broadcast, and um, my books are there, everything. So that's the one place to find me. That's my hub of the universe. Thank you so much, and I'm so glad that you're on the air with us and giving us your wonderful insights. You know, thank you so much. All right, much. you take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Up next. I have a dear friend of mine who I've been begging and pleading and crying with to come on the program with me. She is uh, just this beautiful, wonderful radio talk show host, Stacey Washington. Welcome to the True Life Fridays radio program. Hey, Letitia. How are you? Great. I'm so happy that you're here. And we're going to continue on this theme that we have been talking about. I know you caught some of it uh, while you were waiting uh, in our screening room that – uh, we are talking about how this white privilege theory has actually been affecting people. And since this is True Life Fridays radio, we're talking specifically about the aspect of what it does to the mind and the motivation and the person. 
when you tell them that our country is built on white superiority and white racism and then white people didn't exist until 1681 and then in, in the many layers, I know that they're contradictory. Um, and I know that you had a response that I want to put on air and then we'll talk about that. So I'm going to play for us uh, a couple of uh, first cut from your video response. It's excellent. So uh, let's listen to that. I'm in a state of shock right now. According to your conference, the accomplishments of my family going back generations simply do not exist. Allow me to explain. You see, I'm black. Your conference contends that this country was built on racism. You contend that a pernicious evil is the foundation of every institution and permeates every aspect of American life. According to you, to the degree that your conference exists completely negates the fact that I exist. Wow. So, Stacy, you don't exist? Well, I mean, I, I view myself as a successful individual, and the White Privilege Conference exists to tell black people that they cannot be successful because of white privilege. And so they are, in essence, wiping away not just my accomplishments, but those of my father and my mother, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, going back generations because as we all have in America, because I, I really, I, I bristle at the idea that only blacks have struggled in this country. Yes, we have a history of slavery, but not all blacks in this country are descended from slaves. So every American, if they look back in their familial history, can find a legacy of overcoming problems and struggling and success. They can also find some failure. They can find some of their family members who didn't do well and are examples of what not to do. But in the end, all Americans, if you've been here for a while, you've experienced some negative aspects and some positive, and what you've done with that, your reaction to that, is the level of success that you've experienced. Everything in life is what you do in response to it, not so much the event that occurs to you. So uh, it's the decision-making process that we go through. And I was listening to Kevin Jackson as he was talking about what the white people's response should be when they're, you know, lambasted with this idea of white privilege. And he is so spot on. He, he, he's right as usual, that's what I say about Kevin, is that <laughs> his, his take on things is that there's no reason for white people to assume a mantle of guilt and oppression for things that they may not have been involved in at, you know, slavery, we, there are no white people alive who were slaveholders. There are no blacks alive who were slaves. So does, does the impact of that does, that, does that affect ripple through our society? Of course it does. But guess what else ripples through our society? White guilt. Whites going out of their way through church organizations and philanthropic organizations to pull up the poor and raise up blacks. How many white people silently without a word never getting a check or a little glass sculpture from the NAACP, go through the process of paying for blacks to go to college. There are thousands of white people in America who do that without one shred of credit being given to them. They simply give to a fund or set up a, a situation that gives scholarships. A lot of white people give through endowments of their wealth. Wealthy whites, they don't get any credit for it. They set up endowments that give scholarships to students. You have to be black to get the scholarship, and mm -hmm. those students are the, the recipients <clears throat> of largesse from these very same white privilege oppressors that this conference is trying to, um, to delineate. So 
I'm I'm really insulted by it. But the, I was as I was listening, and I heard a little bit of uh, Dr. Williams's uh, comments as well. I think one of the most important things we can do is, first of all, my my motto is, excellence beats down the effects of racism. It, it doesn't just beat it down; it erases it. If mm-hmm. you are excellent at what you do, no racist can prevent you from being successful because your talent makes room for you. The Bible says that, that your talent makes room for you. So let's just say that every big-time news organization, and there's someone at every single major news outlet and television outlet and radio outlet that has already heard about me, Stacey Washington, and someone spreading lies, and they all hate me. But if I'm good at what I do, and I put out a good product on the radio, and I'm knowledgeable, and I have a, a persona that, speaks to the listeners or the viewers, my talent will make room for me. So I always say to someone who says to me, well, you're black. No, I'm, I'm a child of God. The God that I serve is the one who called everything that we see into being with his mouth. If he says to me, I, you know what, I'm anointing that. I like what you're doing there. You're speaking out on behalf of conservatism from a Christian viewpoint. I'm going to go ahead and bless that. What man can stand against a blessing from God? I'd love to know. I've never seen an example of anyone rising up and smiting down the Almighty. So the, mm-hmm. there's, there's that aspect of things. But even more than that, you know, because there, there are people listening to your show who are not Christians or they're Jewish or, you know, they're, they're Muslim. They're, they don't ascribe to the same Judeo-Christian belief system that I do. And they're saying, well, what about me? I don't believe in that God. Well, The laws of nature apply to us all equally. People who give a lot Mm, get a lot in return. That's called karma. People who work really, really hard and become experts at things are sought out because their expertise is required. If you have something of value, people will pay you to access it, whether it's the knowledge that you contain in your brain or a skill for something that you can do, like playing basketball or being an entertainer, or maybe your skill with your hands and you can cut people's heads open and operate on their brains like Dr. Carson does. I mean, Mm -hmm. every... Every time I hear the white privilege construct and these ideas going around, I come back to all of the blacks that are just in our faces all over this country, successful because of their skill, their intellect, their talent, their expertise, all flying in the face of this supposed white privilege that permeates everything that we have in this country. One of those things cannot be true. Wow. Yes. I I am... I I just love hearing your perspective because we set it up this way um, so that we deliberately want to say, to to show how it is that this comes across this idea that there's this, this, this setup in society and they call it system. And we've thrown this word around a lot. It's a systemic white privilege. The systems in this country are like that. And to hear you say that I don't see those systems. Kevin certainly said that. This, he, because this whole thing was this white privilege that is now being touted as white privilege. He doesn't see it as that way. It's privilege is privilege. It doesn't have a color. And for you to say that it's not just false, it actually insults my accomplishments um, and to explain it, I think, helps people to understand that this is more negative than positive. As much as, you know, white, white privilege theory is trying to make up for, it is causing a larger problem than it's trying to solve. Am I right? 
You're you're exactly right. And it's also, I mean, there's a level of, of you know, there's an insult there. There's an insult. White, the idea of white privilege assumes that, as you pointed out so succinctly earlier, that if you're black, you can't be a racist. Well, do, do does anyone hear what that means? Let's unpack that just for one second. If I, as a black woman, cannot be racist, it means that I cannot have the power to impact another person negatively with my hatred of their race. It means I cannot be superior, and we know that's not true. Just ask Oprah Winfrey. I don't believe Oprah Winfrey's a racist, but let's, for example, say that someone in Oprah Winfrey's position, a, the owner of a television network, the, um, the owner of a successful 20-some-odd years on, te- on television, named one of the most powerful people in America, hires and fires over the course of her 20-year career thousands of people. Mm-hmm. She's employed thousands of people. She has created an, an entire cottage industry under her own name with magazines and uh, promoting products. Let's say that she found someone, let's say she decided, I just, I don't like Asians because you're of Asian descent. I don't want to do business with any Asians. She has the power because she has so much um, economic wealth, economic, uh, she's, she's able to move products. She's able to say, I don't like that and no one will buy it. If she were to say, I'm not going to buy any products from Asians and Asians were going coming to her and saying, oh, wow, you know, I have a new fragrance line and everyone loves it. You know, Demi Moore loves it and all these stars love it. And Oprah said, I think it stinks. And she only did that because the person bringing the product was Asian then that would be racism, would it not? I would consider it so, yes, if she said that yeah, to me, absolutely. Bringing, absolutely. Yes, and if the person who, who was bringing the product would consider that racism. And they would have every right to say, do you really think it stinks, or are you saying that you, don't, you actually don't like it because I'm Asian? I hate this product because you're Asian. That would be racism. So... The idea that a black person can't be a racist if they're using racial slurs or behaving in a way that impacts someone else negatively because of their race is an insult. And it's another layer of the ignorance that surrounds the idea that you, Letitia, are responsible for my success, Stacey. Mm. It's really self-responsibility. So if I know that I'm making it or I'm breaking it based on what I do, I'm going to put my pedal to the metal and I'm going to go as far as I think I can go because the only limits that we have upon ourselves are what we think we can or cannot do. Furthermore, the biggest obstacle in any of our lives is ourself. I can point to numerous occasions in the past five years where because of myself and my own thinking, I've either missed an opportunity or made a mistake or an error. It's not that I can't recover from it, but looking back, I can see that the limitations were placed upon me by me. My thinking, I thought, wow, this seems really tough. And so I didn't perform as well as I could have as if I tackled it saying, I'm meant to do this. This is what I'm made to do and going for it. And people mistake that can-do attitude and the success that comes with it for privilege. But what it really is is someone who's mastered their mind and they see the number one person they're competing with is themselves. I'm not competing with other radio hosts in St. Louis or on Blog Talk or online. I'm competing with myself. I'm not competing with other writers who write books and, and, you know, uh, do punditry, I'm competing with myself. My last article, was that my best one? How can it be better the next one? What do I want to do with myself? Can I write more? Can I, can I talk more? Can I meet more people? Can I network more? All of it hinges upon what I'm, not only what I can do, 
but what I'm willing to do. And study after study after study shows, anthropological data shows, that individuals who are willing to put their maximum effort into any endeavor will become experts within 10 years of solid trying. You have to put yourself into it for 10 years solid. And at wow. the end of that 10 years, they will be experts in their, in their field. And once you achieve expert status, you achieve success because other people who don't have the hours needed, 10,000 hours, or I'm sorry, 20,000 hours, they don't have that time, they seek you out so that you can come on their radio show or their television show or you can come to their school, you can come to their business and teach their people coaching or teach them whatever they need to know. That's why we have experts because the expert is the one who said, this is my thing. And if you, if you want to know more about that, it's Malcolm Gladwell who wrote a book. Uh, he wrote, he's written a number of books, and I've gotten through, I think, I think two of them, um, which he, he just loves digging into the how and the why of Bill Gates, the how and the why of all of these people who have made things that we can't live without, like the Internet and Apple computers and, and smartphones. And why, exactly. why are Asians, yes, why are Asians or Chinese specifically so much better at math than the rest of the world? Well, because their <laughs> language puts numbers into single syllables and I'm talking about Chinese-speaking, so immigrants who still speak Chinese at home, they do math in Chinese. In Chinese, the math numbers that go up 12, 13, 14, we waste time thinking of them and rearranging them in our minds. They, they say them differently, 310. 13 to them is 310. 310, then they understand to be 13. They can add faster. It shaves seconds off, and it makes them look like literal human computers. When in reality, it's a construct of the way that their speech enumerates numbers so, um, or alliterates numbers. So w when we're talking about the why, why is that person so successful, my number one thing that I do is I try to find out everything about what that person is doing. And then whatever is, it is in that list of things that they're doing to get to that level of success that I can do that fit in with my lifestyle because I'm married and I have three kids and I have a whole lot of other things that I do, Whatever fits into my lifestyle, I incorporate those things if I feel like they're smart. I pray on it, and then I, I keep it moving. There's mm -hmm. no, you cannot be successful by looking at your own belly button. You have to look outside <laughs> of yourself and say, wow, there's like 50 people running around here kicking my tail at this. Why am I not doing well? You can see why you're not doing well. You see what they're doing compared to what you're doing, and then adjust. So as far as he was saying that, uh, Kevin Jackson was saying that, you know, kids don't have, they're being told by these white privilege things because of white privilege. The fact is our children in the black community, and I'm speaking loosely because I consider myself to be an American, and I'm not a member of a black community. I'm a member of the community of Americans that all of us are in this thing together. But for purposes of this discussion, I am black, and blacks are doing the worst educationally in this country. There is no reason why blacks have to do poorly when educational spending in inner-city neighborhoods dwarfs that of suburban districts with AAA-rated, uh, you know, educational systems. What we need yeah. is the focus to be at home. The, ho the home focus is missing. And for kids who really want to get out of the ghetto, we see them rise up and out all the time. They do it on their own, irregardless of the white privilege and their single mom and, you know, drug-addicted this person and that person's in prison and, you know, eight siblings. They do it right. because they want out. So if right. they can do it, that means other kids who are living in suburban homes can put down their iPods and their Minecraft uh, joysticks and their, their uh, Xboxes 
and their parents can say, no, you're not going to go spend two hours out in our, our driveway playing basketball tonight. You're going to do 30 minutes of reading, and you're going to do 30 minutes of math drills on the computer, and then you're free to go do whatever you want. You're going to do the right. minimum, set some minimum standards, and then watch as your children take it over on their own. My, at our household, that's exactly what we did. I started my children off reading to them 15 minutes a night. And it, at first it was just like, and I love to read, but I was like, wow, reading these children's books for 15 minutes a night is killing me. And my kids would always want to keep going. <laughs> oh, can you read some more? And I'd be thinking, this is what I have to do. And so it was really a battle for me to do it. So mm-hmm. I enlisted my husband's help and we took turns. Then in the summer when we had all of those hours, I would say, well, you know what, guys, let's go to the library and do the summer reading program, which incentivized their reading. And if there was a reading program at school where they could win prizes, little cardinal tickets or, or slushies from Sonic, we would participate in it. And it was me sitting up at night at 930, filling out 30 days where I did a color in a book or color in a circle. That's right. Kids would never hey, I've been there, it. too. And it was, yeah. And it was, yes, you know what I'm it, it I exactly saying. Like, I felt like a drone. I, I, I hated it. But. I can say with absolute certainty that my children, all three of them, right now at their tender ages of 10, 13, and 14, individually have read more at this point in their lives than 50% of the Americans in this country right now. People, some of, some of whom have bachelor's degrees, only 30% of the, uh, the American populace has, a, you know, an advanced education, but... Right, and, right. and is that saying something? Absolutely. I have one child who reads almost two hours a day in the summertime. The other two fluctuate, but they read a minimum of 30 minutes a day. But I don't have to track it anymore. I don't have to color in circles. I don't have to because it's self-driven. They're in the back seat when we're coming from the grocery store or coming back from the movies. When are we going to the library again? I'm all out of books. They've read everything we have in our house on every bookshelf, and they're still going. And that's because I made it a priority and I gave them the gift of the joy of reading. Now they're in control of it at their young, tender ages, and they will carry that forward. It's something I don't have to worry about anymore. We right. still work on other things. My kids aren't perfect. They're not machines. But that's an example of how I, I had to work through feeling like a drone, being too tired to read. Some weeks we'd be busy and we'd be doing other activities. People would be sick and we wouldn't read every single night. Sometimes I was just too plain exhausted to, to do right. it. My husband would pick up some of the slack. But it was something that I made, and it's something I said, I have to do this for my kids. Right. And now right. that's behind us. And so my determination was the factor that brought them to the place where they are now. And every parent in America has access to public libraries for free books and the Internet through the library right. system, which is also free. And so there's no excuse for any child not to know how to read based on their parents teaching them how, even if the parent can't read, you can find systems online to teach your child how to read so that when they get to kindergarten, they know their 12 sight words or their 24 sight words or whatever your right. state standard right. is, and you can go forward with your child's education. So I, right. I really, this, this is about <clears throat> what we think we can do versus what we allow some 2,500 people at a conference. We're going to let those 2,500 idiots tell us that, white privilege prevents us from being successful. I refuse to accept that. And I, right. I would hope or, that, or that the because same way that you are, you're an anomaly. You're an anomaly. How many, how does that feel? Well, but, <laughs> well, I mean, not that, not that different. You know, you, you and I both know we're tea party people and we are the, or we're the 1%, if you will, 
Um, right. But not but I'm well glad to know. I'm glad to know through their definition that as, as the longer that I'm in the Tea Party, um, I'm supposed to become more and more racist. But since I'm not white, I can't be a racist. You know, you're really you're, you're really double timing that right there. You're kind of you're, you're playing both sides of that coin, and you're doing it with a smile on your face. And I think you know it takes a lot of guts to be as racial as you are right now, and then also not be guilty of being a racist at the same time. It's like you're defying the space-time continuum. It's almost like an episode of Star Trek or something, where you're in the warp field, and the rest of us are like in a in a uh, the time split. Where we're in one time and you're in another because you're like doing two times at the same time. That's, that's amazing. That's right. That's right. I'm 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 a time lord. I'll I'll put that. I'll I'll wear that shirt. I will. Gladly. I will do. I will do. I love. I love sci-fi. A little bit too much apparently. <laughs> well, thank you, Stacy, for sharing so much of that with us. And I think that coming from your heart, I mean, I think that's really sticks the knife into this idea that that people can't make in general that this potential that people have i think this let me be very positive about the 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 black community in general i think every potential is out there as it is for any other ethnic group Uh except the message being sent to them is the one that's hampering them the most and if we stop talking like that i think people will see a marked difference in well, the, it's just in the a, academic it's just rejecting it, right, Letitia? It's what you're saying. We have to reject that. If, if I were That's to right. tell you that I didn't think your kids were attractive, you would immediately be like, well, it's clear that Stacey has issues with her eyesight because my kids are gorgeous. And that's the way I feel about my kids, which your kids are gorgeous. I've seen them, and they're fantastic. But the example that I'm giving is when someone insults you and says something that you know is clearly false, you immediately reject it. And this is another situation and opportunity for all of us as Americans to reject those who want to divide us into groups, pit us against each other, and bring hatred to the fore when really all we need to do is focus on what our goals are. Write your goals down and then start hitting them. It's amazing how it's anthropologically study-driven. This is science. This is data. You write it down and it will get done. If you write down what you want to do, it will get done. It's like magic almost. You just write it down, <laughs> and before you know it, you're crossing it off the list. So that, that's my advice to anyone who's listening who thinks I'm a full of crap. Don't listen to me. Don't believe me. Go home and write down five things you want to get done this year. And then start thinking about how to get them done. Get some help. And watch at the end of this year. You don't have to say thank you, Stacey. I'll feel your love from afar. I'll feel it. Uh-huh. Don't worry about it. And that is just the most positive thing I think we could ever wrap up your segment with. Thank you so much. Stacy on the right, catch her show when? Uh, every Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. And visit me at progressivestoday.com and uh, tpnn.com. Just, I'm all over the place. Just hit the Google. Perfect. Thank you so much. Stacy Washington, Thanks. everybody. And I think I think that I mean there isn't anything that I can say that that doesn't add I can't add too much to what she said and to Kevin Jackson and to Dr. Walter Williams. Um, coming from my background, I'm probably of of that third category that nobody really talks about because Asians don't count for some reason. We and the statistics are 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 fairly accurate. Asians, Indian people of East Indian descent, immigrant children of immigrants, especially, um, 
by and large are living this privilege, and I see that in air quotes, this privileged life because, you know, our parents kicked our tails to do well in school when we were children and didn't take crap from anybody. I remember when I was a child in grade school, and I go back to the beginning where I say I was the victim of a lot of insults, racially motivated insults, day in, day out. It didn't matter if it came from a white person, a Hispanic person, a, a kid, fellow classmates, blacks. I had it coming from every direction, let me tell you. And being the only, only Asian child, the entire school only added to that. And let me tell you this, though. While I was a victim of verbal abuse, I am not a victim. And what this white privilege theory does to people is say that you, particularly if you're black in America, you are, are a victim. Not you have been a victim. You are a victim. So go live out your victim mentality seeking And I had this conversation with my husband last night about what it is that a person, a theologian, distinguished as he is, like Anthony Bradley, wants to take from propounding this white privilege theory. What is it that he wants? What do people want from people, from others, to why they want to adopt this white privilege theory? And I mentioned yesterday that he seemed to take it very personally, and this is why. He wants somebody to be responsible to take on the on some form of guilt since his ancestors slave masters are no longer alive to apologize for what they did he wants somebody and society will become that that somebody white society will become that society the descendants of those slaveholders will be that society to take on that guilt, to take on his desire for someone to pay the price of what happened in the past. I have an answer for that. Somebody has. That somebody is Jesus Christ. And until we understand that this country was not built on white supremacy and black slavery. It was not built. That is the mechanics of what happened. That is what happened in the, in the material sense. But this country, the idea, our constitution, everything was built on the idea that we are all human beings. We may occupy different stations in life, justly or unjustly, but we are all human beings. And if we understand our humanity, we can be what we are supposed to be, humans who have the ability and the agency to affect change in our lives and to stop a narrative that seeks to hem people in behind these invisible walls and these walls that Kevin Jackson says are just completely artificial and constructed, and I have to agree. I have to agree. If you are a minority and you feel like your minority status gives you a disadvantage to somebody who is white, 
Maybe you do have issues. Maybe there is an issue. But the issue isn't that the other person is white. The, pers- the, the issue is you haven't taken your unforgiveness to the cross of Jesus Christ and realize your true potential as a human being. And without that, you can't see the other people who are white as human beings either. You only see white if you remain in your unforgiveness. So the, the bottom line here is that you can't, you can't acknowledge humanity in its fullness without dismantling and rejecting this idea that, that white privilege conference goers are trying to push onto people. That's just an example. And with that, I'm going to come to, okay, with that, I'll, uh, let me first do this. Let me first do this. I'm going to show you what can happen when somebody says, I think I can and does. I have a headline that says a 16-year-old girl, black girl, third in a family of nine children, is graduating from high school and college in the same week. In fact, she graduated from college, college degree, before she received her high school diploma. She has a mother and a father. She has the drive to learn. And nobody has told her she can't because she's black and the world is white. And that nobody told her she couldn't go to college. Although we have plenty of people in our culture today telling you you can't do it if you're a minority and you can't succeed without the, the, the ceiling being um, lifted or the floor being lifted for you to be somehow equal to everybody else. Well, I, I'm here to say that that narrative is false. And with that, okay, finally we reached the stupidest thing ever of the day. I love it. Hey, this is not first class. talk about something that I found on the internet that explains or shows something really, really stupid in America. It's not that I see that it's that a people people are stupid is what happens to students. I saw this and it says uh, interesting choice. Blonde Brazilian man obsessed with South Korea undergoes ten rounds of surgery to look more Asian. He has hooded eyes now. He dyed his hair dark, uh, and I bet you he changed his skin color with makeup to look like he's from South Korea. This guy is hair and blue-eyed. I mean, he could be from Norway. Changed his name to Xi'an, which I'm not really sure is a South Korean name. But uh, I think that was the stupidest thing ever. Please do not, do not fall in love with an ethnic group other than your own, so much so that you want to change your face surgically to look like that? Yeah, that's uh, to me, that's pretty stupid. As an Asian, I think I can say that. Well, join us next week for True Life Fridays. We're going to have a special treat with Carrie Michael Bogue, 
and possibly Troy Newman. Find us on the internet at truelifefridaysradio.com and give us a like at on Facebook at True Life Fridays Radio. Have a good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.